Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. Well, I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold at ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for Indies Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Notre Dame season hit a red light today. The program announced it has paused all football-related activities and will not be playing at Wake Forest this Saturday. Um, so quite the bit of news to break here on Tuesday. Notre Dame currently has 13 players in isolation as a result of positive COVID-19 tests. Um, and another 10 players are in quarantine because of contact tracing. So... Quite a, quite a few players, that, like several players, um, that they're, they're without for the immediate future. So that's limiting their ability to keep practicing and then uh, potentially playing. So um, seven of those players tested positive on Monday, which prompted the shutdown. Um, so now Notre Dame, Wake Forest, and the ACC are working to reschedule the game. Uh, both teams actually have off weeks next week. So um, that would be a potential solution, but that might be too quick of a turnaround for Notre Dame to stop the spread and have uh, the players return that they need. So let's start there, Eric. Do you think we'll see these two teams play each other on October 3rd? You know, I'm not sure yet because we're talking about at least nine new players being added to that mix. And if there is a position group that got hit especially hard, that would keep these two teams from playing. If I had to say for sure, I would say I would lean toward them not playing next week. Otherwise they would have, if they were confident they were going to play, they would have already rescheduled that game. It was easy. They both had the open week. Then I think this game might end up getting pushed back all the way to December 12th. But we do know that, um, Per a report from WSBT with Deputy um, Health Director Mark Fox from St. Joe County, the Notre Dame is testing tomorrow, and perhaps that test will reveal, um, you know, reveal more information. Remember, there can be false positives sometimes, and so I'm not saying that that's the case, but that did happen in the NFL one week where there was false positives, and then they were able to make a correction. So 
we'll know a lot more tomorrow than we do today as far as our psychic powers about October 3rd. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it makes sense and uh, to, to kind of wait on that. And uh, I know we were kind of in the process of reporting all this uh, when we were, when the first report came out that Notre Dame wasn't practicing today, um, we were trying to get answers on that. We weren't, <laughs> weren't getting anywhere. And one of our theories was that maybe they're trying to wait till they, to, to reschedule this game to kind of announce it all at once. And um, they did announce that they were canceling or postponing the game, but um, still don't have a date attached to that yet. So I think certainly it will, it will depend on how many of those players they can get back um, from obviously the earlier ones that were put into either quarantine or tested positive um, back going, going all the way back to like the Duke week. Um, and then moving forward from there, what, what hurdles do you see um, for Notre Dame that they need to sort of clear to kind of resume practices and, and get back on track to playing games? They need to figure out how this happened uh, because their plan is really good. And up until now, they've been one of the better teams in terms of turning out negative tests and, and just again, this isn't our reporting. I saw a series of tweets from Max Lewis at WSBT and talking to Dr. Mark Fox, who's consulting with Notre Dame. You know, Notre Dame seems to be baffled at how these guys ended up uh, testing positive. So barring false positive, positive tests, you know, that you have to get to the bottom of it. They still haven't contacted Trace. It sounds like everybody, uh, because they're not sure when the virus started spreading again. Uh, that That's the biggest problem. Once they can solve that, then it's an experience where they can learn and say, okay, never again, you know, this isn't happening. We need to tighten things up. When we look at Major League Baseball, there were two teams, Miami and St. Louis, early, very early in that process that looked like it was just going to bring down the whole Major League Baseball season. And those teams, once they kind of figured out the origin of their problem and why it perpetuated, the spread perpetuated, they were able to correct them and play a zillion doubleheaders and kind of get back into things. So I think, again, this is this could turn out to be a positive for Notre Dame to find a leak in the science, a leak in their system, uh, maybe a leak in their diligence, um, because I know that 99.999% of the players and the coaches have been taking this seriously, and that's why this is such a big surprise. I, I think Boston College would be another surprise. Boston College has probably had the most exemplary record of any team in the FBS in terms of their testing. So um, just getting to the bottom of why this happened now, they're not going to share that with us, but uh, getting to the bottom of why it happened is is paramount here. Yeah, I think um, the contact tracing stuff is so hard and trying to figure out where it came from. I mean, there's so many hours in the day, and even if you're trying to, to limit your interactions with other people, um, even the simplest things, like even getting gas at the gas station, who knows what, what you could have come into contact with if you got to go inside and stuff like that. So – there's always there's always a chance um, that even someone that maybe have trans got, received the the virus somehow got it somewhere and they don't they maybe 
if they're asked to, where were you three days ago? Maybe there's someone that like, Oh yeah, I forgot that I did this. It was so, yeah. You say you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even have even thought that that would be where you could have contracted the virus from. So. Well, well just looking at your own life, you know, like today I was, uh, I had to go get my car serviced, um, routine maintenance. And I'm trying to think of my transactions there. I handed the guy my keys, my key fob at one point. Right. And then when I was leaving, you know, twice he had me with two different pens sign my name to something. And fortunately for me, I mean, those are times I carry hand sanitizer in my pocket at all times. So after each time I'm, I'm doing the hand sanitizer, I don't know why I had that second pen <laughs> and he had just touched it. Um, and again, it usually doesn't transmit that way, but he could have sneezed on it or whatever just before I walked up. So, yeah, I mean, it's little things like that where you just need to be kind of extra alert. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, to me, you know, carrying hand sanitizer in your pocket and just being careful. I went into a restaurant for takeout, and again, I touched the door handles. Um, you know, I was pretty far away from the person that, gave me my food and so forth. But as I got back into my car, you know, do the hand sanitizer before I touch things in my car. So, but, but it's just that easy. I mean, if it were two days from now, would I remember all those little things? Right. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I, I, it'd be, it'd be fascinating to know what Notre Dame thinks about this, but do you, has the past week lowered your confidence in Notre Dame's ability to slow the spread of the virus on the team at all? It, it hasn't, but, and I'm not pointing fingers, but what kind of ran through my mind at the beginning of the season was what would happen when family and, and so forth came in town for games and so forth, because, most of those people would be traveling by airplane and we haven't heard of big super spreader events on an airplane and so forth. But you think about, you know, air travel, when you talk to most epidemiologists right now, they say if they can wait until 20, you know, if they had a choice of flying, they would wait till 2021, that would be a 2021 event for them. So there's still higher risk with that flying and, and again, the, the whole thing about COVID-19 that would be much easier is if everybody had symptoms and the fact that there's such a high rate of asymptomatic spread, it's that, that's what is the, you know, one of the things. The other thing is that there are a segment of people that don't believe that this is anything, that this is about all a big hoax. Right. I would think there would be few family members of players that would think that, but you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone comes from different uh, uh, viewpoints and that certainly isn't a, isn't a really small uh, population. It doesn't seem like there people take this seriously at varying degrees. And um, I think it's, it's also natural to when you get around people, you know, and love to kind of let your guard down a little bit and maybe do things that you wouldn't be doing. If you're um, even if you're vigilant six other days of the week, you might, might, lapse into doing something that you probably shouldn't have done and that could that could open you up to that but I mean we're just speculating we really don't know how this happened and like you mentioned that's what you would, we would well, I mean and sometimes it's in the unmo- mo- most unlikely way 
you and I know that one of our former coworkers, his wife got it going to the doctor to get her knee checked out. Right. Right. So, and then spread it to him. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just a crazy thing that, you know, the vaccine can't get here soon enough or <laughs> therapeutics or whatever you feel like the end of the pandemic will be that can't get here soon enough. Yeah. So Notre Dame uh, canceled media availability for the week. Uh, not surprisingly, we were supposed to be interviewing players tonight and certainly you don't want them to be the first ones to go out there and have to talk about what's going on. Um, and it doesn't seem like we'll probably talk to Brian Kelly until next week, but if we were to have the chance, um, what would you want to ask Brian Kelly? Would it be just kind of, have you guys figured out how this has happened or are there other questions that you really want to get to the bottom of? Um, I, I think besides how did this happen is because people ask us, what would you look at changing or improving? Because it doesn't imply that you're doing something wrong. The whole very nature of having plans for COVID-19 were that they were going to evolve. Right. And I even wrote about this yesterday in my analysis, and Dr. Leisler talked about this. Dr. Mark Leisler um, talked about this back in June, that their plan in October should and will look very different than it did in June, just because science is different, knowledge about the virus is different, um, and you've had some trial and error with different things. So, yeah, I would want to know what they could do so that they wouldn't be needing to do this again. Because as a football program, you only you don't want this to happen more than once. Um, and so far, I don't think we've seen a program that has had to start and stop twice. I think Virginia Tech is the one – that's struggling to come out of its first first um, taste of this. The, the other thing that's kind of interesting, and I tried to kind of go down this road a little bit with Brian, uh, was, you know, I know that they're testing every position or, or some position groups every day. Um, does it come to the point where, Notre Dame has to test everybody every day. And even then, would it have prevented this? If somebody, um, you know, unknowingly went out to dinner at a place that had bad ventilation, and then I, I guess to me it shortens the windows and it, it mitigates the spread, but it doesn't necessarily – eliminate completely outbreaks. It's very interesting watching the NFL with this because they've been so successful without a bubble. And one of their staples has been daily testing. All right. Well, let's switch over to questions from the listeners. Just tell me when you guys, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. Uh, all these questions were submitted before today's postponement news, uh, but we still wanted to answer them. Um, so we'll, we'll also proceed in answering them as if uh, we don't necessarily know who was caught up in the contact tracing or the positive test results from Monday. So um, certainly some of these players could be. We have no idea, um, and we don't want to make it seem like we do or don't. 
Um, so we're just going to answer them as if we are all on the same page of not necessarily knowing uh, who is being shut down right now uh, on Notre Dame's team. Um, so the first question we have is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. We keep hearing about daily rapid testing as the Big Ten's key cog to returning. Will this be available to other teams like Notre Dame? And if so, wouldn't that eliminate the need for contact tracing? Um, I think eventually every team in the country will have access to this. Um, you know, how quickly and how cheaply, that's really the question. There are already, for example, um, FDA emergency approval for some of the lateral flow tests that are point of care tests. They're the ones where you spit on a piece of paper and in 15 minutes you have an answer in, in terms of whether you're positive or negative. So it works kind of like a pregnancy test from that standpoint. There's the Abbott was the first manufacturer to make it through the FDA pipeline. There's a bunch of others that are also in the pipeline that are close to the end of that uh, should be getting emergency use or regular FDA approval here very soon. And then you could scale it up. You know, Abbott said, you know, they could make 50 million tests per month. But if you think about just what sports would consume testing full football teams every day, right. you'd go through that number pretty quickly. So we need other manufacturers to, to, to have similar tests approved. And again, it's going to bring the cost down to where teams like the Mid-American Conference um, – can participate in this. Will it, will it eliminate the need for contact tracing? I've seen people say that and I don't understand why it would eliminate it. I think it would reduce it. I think that if you're testing for every day, you could do the contact tracing. It's still, if somebody tested positive, you'd want to quarantine those other individuals until you found out, you know, if they were also, positive, but you get to the bottom of it faster with daily testing. You could also close the window of 14 days faster um, because I would think you'd be able to know conclusively uh, with the NFL, for example, they, they believe by the end of day eight, they know whether you are really positive or you're really negative from that initial contact. So that's why they're uh, quarantine window is smaller. Their isolation wall window for actual positive tests is smaller as well. Potentially, it could be as small as five days. Now, remember, in each of these instances, with with college kids especially, you've got to take the cardiac tests within that 10-day isolation period. You have also can't do any... Um, conditioning if you're in isolation until you're at the end of your isolation period, whereas quarantine guys can work out individually and, and keep some semblance of conditioning so that when they do get to the end of their quarantine, they're ready to roll back into practice. So an isolation case, not necessarily. And that's, again, why October 3rd is such a tricky thing, and it would be even with daily testing, but daily testing is good. And it's going to help um, in a lot of ways. Just look at the NFL. 
Now, you might not even know the answer to this, Eric, but you, I, I feel like you know more about COVID-19 than anyone that I know personally. <laughs> is, is the, the reason that if you're in isolation because you tested positive uh, and you can't conditioning, is that because you're, you risk like making the symptoms worse by conditioning or you just because you're in isolation, you can't physically get to a place where you can do any actual conditioning? Um, there's truth in both of those, but part of it is getting through that battery of cardiac tests. You gotcha. don't want to do any of that, but, but there's, you know, quarantine is a little bit different than isolation is. And, and from my understanding, again, they want to make sure that you're not making the virus worse, that you've done your cardiac work. You know, one of the people we know that got um, COVID-19, uh, he ended up jogging every day during the time that he had it. Um, his wife couldn't do anything. She couldn't even get out of bed. So, you know, some of it depends on your symptoms, but there's much more of an abundance of caution when you absolutely are a confirmed case versus, well, let's see if you are a confirmed case. Right. Okay. Uh, next question we have is from Andrew Barlow at Barl Andrew. If a quarterback was unavailable, presumably due to either contact tracing or a positive test for USF, how does that affect the whole QB room? Is there an ND strategy for segmenting position rooms to forestall a whole group being summarily disqualified for a game? Well, I asked Brian Kelly about this a little bit earlier this season or preseason and specifically about the quarterbacks and what his answer to me at the time was that, you know, I thought maybe they were doing their meetings via zoom. Um, they are actually in the same room. They're wearing masks. They're social distancing. Um, they're very um, careful with it, but Ian book is actually in an actual bubble. He doesn't go to class. He takes all his classes online and, um, you know, other than practice and his meetings, he's not living with somebody else. And I think he's very much limiting who he's around, including his teammates off the field, which has got to be weird for him. Yeah. It's incredible sacrifice. But you wonder mentally, you know, just having, you know, gone through, you know, I took it real seriously when we had our lockdown orders. Um, I, I didn't even – I, another human being didn't touch me for three months. Um, and it was really strange when it first happened. I had to go to the doctor because I had a knee injury. Um, you brought a piece of chocolate cake over my house and we met outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was the first contact I had with anybody, you know, that I had seen another human being. And that was probably a few weeks into it. So I can imagine what you know, there's a weird mental thing for him. The The thing is he's playing on Saturdays and he's going to practice. That probably mitigates that a little bit. But, yeah, he's in a bubble very much. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the things that we're curious if Notre Dame sees a need to improve its uh, kind of protocols. If, if, if uh, the protocol they have in place that allows – guys to be in the same room and watch film together or whatever, um, if maybe that's not strong enough and maybe they need to enhance that in some way. We don't, we don't have all the details on exactly how it's working. We, it's, been, it's really hard trying to get 
everything hammered down in terms of who's meeting with who and when and how. Um, but I, it seems like they were, they have been confident in the way they had things set up and that it would prevent the, the, the spread. And then it wouldn't even necessarily eliminate guys through contact tracing. And that most of the contact tracing would come through guys who live together and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see moving forward after this recent round, if they, if they see a need to maybe um, change that in some way. One little detail, for example, that, that, you know, again, they don't publicize everything they're doing, but it just kind of came out when I was talking to the sports information director about player interviews, they don't all, when practice is over, they stagger them leaving the field and going to the locker room. Right. So that you only have a smaller segments in the locker room at one time. That's how detailed they are in terms of their plan. Next question is from Carlton Butler at Carlton underscore Butler. Now that we've gotten to see the running back room basically in totality over the last two games, where do you think the running back rotation ends up as it's finalized? I say Williams, Tyree, Flemister, but then it's hard to fathom a talent like Armstrong not getting playing time. Well, with the running back position in particular, it's a long season and there's bumps and rhythm and different things that happen and guys get, you know, I don't want to say beyond just injured guys are sore. They're not a hundred percent. Right. So somebody later in the season may be fresh and may be able to help you a little bit more. Um, we will have COVID to deal with all year. We'll have injuries and so forth. Um, so, so we're looking at, you know, Williams, Tyree, Sebo, Jameer Smith, and Jafar. Jafar, and then to a lesser extent, Kendall Abdurrahman. Yeah. Um, I think what we're seeing now, if we don't have a change in circumstances with health, I think they like Kyron Williams as the number one, and they really like Chris Tyree's speed. And then Sebo's given them the thump that Jameer. Smith gave them a little bit late in the Duke game, but at, at a higher level. So I do think we'll see those three. And then Jafar will mix in, I think, as a situational player. I think, you know, injuries are a funny thing, but sometimes they erode trust with the coaching staff if they become, say, well, can we really count on him? And I think that's kind of where Jafar is in terms of staying healthy. You know, I mean, they – his injuries sometimes have been very freaky, but again, if you, if you have breakdowns, they're going to have to, you know, depend on guys that they think will stay healthy. Yeah. I think I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in terms of what we saw from Steve Lemister against USF because US, USF was bad. Um, so, but I do think that he's shown some things and um, the coaching staff likes him and, and wants him to be a part of the group. So I don't know that it's going to get, that they're going to shorten the, the, the rotation at any point. That's kind of what I asked Brian Kelly after the Duke game. I was like, do you guys really want Kyron Williams to kind of shoulder the load and be the number one guy? And I, and I think they do like him as the, the lead guy, but I think that they're going to want to use a number of guys and keep them fresh. And um, I think it keeps those guys invested and keeps them sharp if, if they're going to be needed more later in the season. So I think, I think you got to find a way to keep Jafar involved in some way, because I, I would imagine after everything he's gone through, if he, if he gets relegated to being like the four string running back and taking reps when the, in the blowouts only, that's gotta be pretty demoralizing as a, as a senior 
um, to be kind of put in that position. But maybe he handles handles it fine, and they're not worried about that. But I think um, they they need to keep their rotation deep there um, as long as those guys are all being productive. I don't see that a need to necessarily limit the carries for guys that you want to have invested throughout this whole season, especially in this season of all seasons. The the thing too is you have to look at games where they're going to face an outstanding run defense. And I I would say probably Pitt and um, Clemson jumped to mind for me on that. And, and you think about the games in this 35 and six run that Notre Dame is on right now, the six losses, they haven't run the ball well in any of those games. And I think that's why Tyree is so important because he has the elite speed that could stand up in a game like that. I'm not saying the other guys couldn't. I think they'll do fine. But Chris Tyree's a guy that could break an 80-yard run against a team that's really good with their run defense. Yeah, that that, that kind of stuff reminds like – Georgia, in, uh, when they came up to Notre Dame, you just saw those linebackers flying around. It's like Notre Dame's running backs are not getting away from those guys. Right. And then that's, that's, that, that makes all the difference when you're, when you're talking about um, trying to establish a running game. Uh, next question is from Christian Bogan at C underscore Bogan 1989. Will the receiver step up before Kevin Austin returns? Do you think he can have a big enough impact on the receiving core to elevate – his fellow wide receivers into Notre Dame having an actual passing attack. I think Lindsay will. And I think we saw that a little bit in the South Florida game. And if it had been a more competitive game, we probably would have seen more Lindsay. And I think Ben Skoranek probably does because I think Ian book trusts him, even though they haven't connected yet. Um, you know, he was out pretty early in the Duke game. Maybe Avery Davis, but I, I don't see him as being a go-to guy. Um, but I think once Austin comes back, he will elevate everybody on the receiving core. And here's why. You know, there's receivers that can can um, put a opposing defensive coordinator in a dilemma in terms of how he wants to deal with that receiver. And right now, Notre Dame doesn't have that on the field. Lindsey could be that kind of receiver and I think will be but I think Austin definitely is that kind of receiver at 100% so so let's go back I'm not turning him into Will Fuller but let's look at 2015 with Will Fuller so if you're an opposing defensive coordinator are you going to double him every play and if you are then you are opening things for the other wide receivers you're also opening up the running game with the exception of maybe Lindsay, the other receivers don't have that kind of ceiling. They don't have that kind of power. So Austin is going to make things better for everybody, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I would – I don't doubt that. I think in terms of the current guys, Skoranek was my pick at the beginning of the season to break out, and obviously he got hurt in the first game of the hamstring injury. So we'll see if he can regain his form there. Um, we, I think we all want to see Braden Lindsay's role expand. He needs to stay healthy and available um, and be re- a reliable receiver rather than sort of a, a big play threat um, in, in small doses. Um, it seems like Javon, Javon McKinley is, is stuck kind of in the role as a great blocker and um, not going to stretch the field for you in, in, in many ways. Um, 
I'm starting to believe the slot position in general is going to matter less and less as we go throughout the season with the way the tight ends are playing for Notre Dame. And I think maybe that maybe that impacts the, the passing game and makes things easier for the receivers because if you've got to – your safeties have to keep attention on Michael Mayer and uh, Tommy Tremble in the middle of the field, they can't help as much on, on, the corner, on the receivers with the cornerbacks on the outside, and maybe that allows some guys to make some plays. Um, so I think there's, there's more than one way to sort of improve the passing game. Um, I, I think it's a little too early to panic about the passing game. The Duke game wasn't great. And they, they just didn't need the passing game to do anything against USF. Um, so I think you'd certainly like to see some more splashes. But um, I think if it was sort of the reverse and Ian Book had five touchdown passes against Ian Book, uh, USF last weekend, I think we'd be like, well, will they be able to run the ball? I think, I think it's just the, the reverse. I, I, we're not going to be able to see everyone. Not every uh, aspect of the offense can score five touchdowns. So you got you got to kind of spread – uh, spread it out, and, and you can't necessarily get everything at once, and you don't necessarily need to do everything at once. And it's it's it's. I wouldn't waste your your best uh, pass plays against USF because you just don't you don't need to. Next question is from at Soccer Guy eight eight zero one. Have we seen the rise and fall of Jafar Armstrong at Notre Dame? Last year he starts game one as the number one running back, gets hurt early, and never regains his form. Is he just not a natural running back? Is he injury prone? Would a move back to wide receiver be better for him? And at DRock Irish also had the same question about Jafar Armstrong as a receiver um, because he thinks you should be able to get him open in space and he's danger- dangerous with his speed. Well, let's look at what he's done so far this year. Nine carries for 12 yards and a touchdown and three receptions for 38 yards. Um, so I think there's going to be a role for him. I mean – He is, they're committed to him as a niche player right now, and he can certainly convince them with his play on the field and being able to stay healthy. And he needs to do that over time. It's not going to be overnight. Um, And I think he can be kind of in that role all year and be helpful. And I don't think you move him to wide receiver because I think one of the beauties of him being a running back is there's always the danger that you can hand him the ball, but you can also get him into in some mismatches uh, where he has a linebacker or a safety on him instead of a cornerback covering him. And I like those matchups better with Jafar. The other thing is if you move him to wide receiver, once you get your whole wide receiver quarterback, who are you going to displace? Who's going to sit so that Jafar Armstrong can catch passes? I, I would think that the, the path of least resistance is the slot receiver position. They're pretty high right now in Avery Davis and Lawrence Keys when they're both healthy and virus-free. So there's not a clear path to playing time for him at that position either. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm starting to envision Jafar Armstrong being more of sort of the gadget player, change of pace guy in smaller doses that I thought maybe Chris Tyree would be this season. I wasn't sold that Chris Tyree could be like a number two running back, which it seems like now he kind of is like the, when they want to give Kyron Williams a blow and they want to change things up a bit, they'll put Chris Tyree in there and they can run the entire offense with Chris Tyree as the running back. Whereas it seems like Jafar Armstrong right now, they're going to work him into some specific roles, try to give him the ball out of the backfield. And I think that's a good move because he's, he's great with that. Obviously you don't want to be predictable when, whenever he comes out of the field, they're going to be expecting you to throw the ball to him. Uh, but I, I just think that's kind of the way things have developed. And now certainly things can change and Jafar can um, 
kind of move his way back up the depth chart potentially. But the reality right now is that he's not um, the number one running back that I think many of us thought he had the potential to be. There was a guy that was on the team, oh gosh, probably back when Al Lesser was the beat writer, we called him Ronnie Running Play Rodimer. He was a wide receiver, and every time Ronnie was on the field, it was a running play. He was blocking. So you don't <laughs> no. want to turn into Ronnie Running Play Rodimer. <laughs> we don't want that. All right, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. I hope I said that right after being scolded by Eric last week. Um, it seems that our receivers are not getting separation. Why do you think this is? Even with our best receivers out, there shouldn't be any player from Duke or USF that can out-talent anyone on our roster. Can the scheme be tweaked to help the receivers get better separation? Well, Marie, I, I think there's a few things that here. Sometimes um, separation is about route running and not speed. Sometimes it's play calls. Sometimes it's Ian Book maybe not throwing deep passes down the field. Uh, and some of it's the absence of Kevin Austin. You know, if if you're confident that there's not somebody, and, and Lindsey in the first game too, if you're confident that nobody's going to run by you, then it's easy to bring everybody up closer to the line of scrimmage and kind of stick and make it really difficult to get separation. So I think there's a lot of things at work here, but my sense is that once we see healthy doses of Braden Lindsay and Kevin Austin, where there is a threat of somebody running past a corner or running past a safety, then I think we're going to see everybody get a chance at a little bit more separation. Some of it too is chemistry. Brian Kelly alluded this to this in the first, I believe, and I guess I can say this, that wide receiver in the preseason was one of the position groups that was had some COVID effects where there were some people missing practices. And so I think it hindered Ian Book a little bit in terms of timing chemistry with the receivers. I think it, it's going to get better as it goes along. So I don't think we need to wave the magic wand quite yet. Yeah, I, I think it's tough to say that they're not getting separation. One, because I, like I said, the USF game plan didn't call for it. And also – it's harder for us just as reporters to kind of spot it when there's only one of us allowed to be at the game. I mean, when you, when you can see that is when you're up above watching the game, it, right. you don't really see that on the TV broadcast unless they had to do a replay and show, Hey, this guy was wide open that like Ian book missed or something like that because the, the screen doesn't pan out to where all the receivers are running. That's just not the, what the television shows you. So it's kind of harder to do that. Like obviously if we have three or four of us at the game, we don't all have to be as focused on one thing. We can rely on each other to see different things. Um, but when we're there by ourselves, it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. Now, certainly we're happy to be there at all. So it's, it's, it's not a complaint, but it just, I think it, it limits our ability to sort of get a, get a full grasp on that. Um, and so, and I think you're spot on with how the defenses will play against Notre Dame. I think a defensive backs will probably love, I mean, if you're a defensive back, you probably don't love getting blocked by Javon McKinley, but you're probably not worried that he's going to run by you. You feel like you can be pretty aggressive with him um, in the short area because you think he, if he gets by you and makes a move and you, he fools you a little bit, you're going to at least be able to recover and, and it not may not count against you. So that that is if you if you're not threatening to create separation, it's going to be harder to create separation just because of the way that the, the defense will play against you. 
And speaking of the press box, we're all four rotating in. I had the Duke game. Tyler had the South Florida game. Tom will have the next home game, which is Florida State. But some of us were taking award-winning photographs during our time in the press box as well. I only took a photograph of uh, WNDU's Mark Skull and his reflection off the off the press box windows when when the, the sun comes in really, really bright there towards the end, end of those games. Next question is from Derek at Gerbs Irish 2 Is it unfair for us to have wanted to see a few touchdowns through the air from Ian Book opposed to his three rushing touchdowns against South Florida? Feels like we always want more from a book performance no matter how good he is. I don't think it's unfair. I think it's maybe unrealistic um, given that it was USF. Uh, although certainly there were plays where Ian could have made where those could have been touchdown passes. Certainly would have helped his pass efficiency rating. You know, right now he's in the bottom 25% in terms of pass efficiency rating, which isn't unusual for a good quarterback to be in that spot at this early stage of the season. Um, so, but I think why you want to see that from me in book is you want to see that when Notre Dame – needs him to be an elite quarterback, that he has that in him. So not seeing it against a team that you beat 52 to nothing maybe alarms you a little bit. So I can understand. But right now it's about being efficient, staying healthy. Um, remember, Drew Pine was the backup this game, not Brendan Clark. And there wasn't really a great alternative behind Drew Pine. So, um, so all those things, I think, factor in. Yeah, we saw J.D. Kearney get it, get it in there for, I think, at least one snap as as the walk-on choice as the third-string quarterback. But I, I do think it's a little unfair um, because, I mean, his job as the quarterback is to win the game and make sure the offense is scoring points, and they were doing that. It's not like they weren't scoring. They scored on virtually every drive except for one where, where they missed a field goal. Um, and he wasn't creating uh, – throwing, throwing interceptions. Obviously, he was a little more careless with the football against Duke, and so he was better in that – um, instance with against USF. Um, so I think that's a little unfair. I think, is it fair to want to see better accuracy and flashes of improvement and things that give you reasons to be optimistic? I think that is fair. Um, but like I said earlier, I think we'd all sort of downplay that because it happened against USF. I, I, did, I don't know that anyone felt great about Ian Book last year because of what he did against Bowling Green or New Mexico. I don't think that how people thought about, about Ian Book as a passer. So I think – Bob Davey. I think that's a little bit a little bit unfair. Next question is from Notre Damas at Real Matt Riordan. Why is it quarterback seemingly regress under Brian Kelly? Uh, because it it's true. Um, it's not seemingly, uh, but I would say this: it's not a one size fits all answer either. Um, and we don't necessarily know that Ian Book is going to. Re regress but there have been patterns of it when you look back at you know Tommy Reese was just kind of flat his whole career his pass efficiency rating was very similar as a freshman to as it was his last year in 2013 um Dane Christ went backwards and Dane Christ was largely the mental hurdles of getting over some pretty serious injuries Everett Golson probably Brian Kelly was um, maybe a little bit too 
abrasive with Everett. Um, you know, Malik Zaire was an injury related. Sean Kaiser was really related to the surrounding cast, I think. And then Sean trying to press and put too much on his old own shoulders mentally during a four and eight season. Now you could certainly blame Brian Kelly for some of that. I think some of the, you know, maybe more recent things with Brandon Wimbush and so forth was related to Chip Long as the offensive coordinator. Um, because again, there seemed to be, even with Ian Book, when he hit hiccups last year, <clears throat> it seems to be more mental than than physical. And when you saw the comments recently from Phil Jakovic before his first startup at Boston College, and I voted for him for ACC Quarterback of the Week, Derek King got it, but Phil Jakovic played a great second half in a 26-6 win over Duke. Again, I think some of it's the mental thing. Now, is that all Brian Kelly? Is it some of just being at Notre Dame where the spotlight and the everything kind of, you know, takes over and has a life of its own? Those, those would be my answers. I don't think it's systemic. I don't think uh, it's something that every quarterback is going to experience moving forward here. I think, especially with Tommy Reese as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, I would expect to see that trend kind of peter out here as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think it's impossible to answer because if we well, – I just did in about 9,000 words. It's impossible to answer and not blather on. <laughs> well, no, I mean, we, we can all have theories, but if we knew the answer, then Brian Kelly would know the answer. There's no way that we would know it and Brian Kelly wouldn't have figured it out by now. Um, well, I don't, I don't agree with that completely because I think, I think the, this version of Brian Kelly would have, I think the 2011 version of Kelly was too stubborn. I, I, I think he would have just said, I've always had success. This way. And that that's one of the reasons why they went to the championship game in 2012 was because he threw that out the window and he really threw it out the window after 2016. But I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your answer. No, you're good. I, I just, I, I think, I mean, depending on how Ian Book plays this year, it has kept happening. Um, so I think that, I think that, I mean, that'll go a long way in people's seeing, believing if this isn't a, a happens to everyone kind of situation. I think, I think it's also important when we talk about that. A lot of those players also peaked under Brian Kelly. They played their best yep. football at Notre Dame, if they transferred, they didn't play better wherever they right. transferred. Um, if they made it to the NFL, they didn't have successful NFL careers. Um, Bill Dracovic is now the one example that could prove to be the exception when it comes to that. Um, but we'll see. Obviously, it's way, way too early to say that based off of one, one start that he's made at Boston College. Um, so if we're – he gets sacked as many times as he does in the first <laughs> – Yeah, so I mean, bathroom. so if we're, if we're to agree that those guys did – peak during Brian Kelly's uh, under Brian Kelly is the conclusion that Brian Kelly is doing some sort of irreparable damage to these quarterbacks that they can't recover either throughout their careers or somewhere else. That seems like a stretch to me too. So I, I don't know the answer. That's why I think it's, it's too, it's too complicated. Now it's not, it's not good. Um, If you're trying to recruit a quarterback against Notre Dame, I think uh, you have plenty of evidence of why you'd say you should come here instead of Notre Dame. Um, so I, I think some of it has to be related to, um, defenses and 
opposing coaches sort of learn the flaws of these quarterbacks that Notre Dame has, that Notre Dame gets them to play well early, um, and then teams figure out how to counteract those quarterbacks, and the quarterbacks haven't been able to throw the counterpunch back to be successful enough um, and overcome that in a lot of situations. So um, their flaws get exposed. How do you, how do you fix that? Um, get quarterbacks that have fewer flaws as recruits or get a coach that can eliminate those flaws. And um, certainly we think Tommy Reese can do that. Um, he still has plenty to prove that he, he has done that or will do that. Um, but I think uh, this conversation isn't going to go away, but I don't think every single <laughs> – it seems like uh, everyone is just kind of looking for what they want to see with the quarterback play. And if you, 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 if you didn't think Ian Book was going to be great this season, right now you're panicking and say well, – Phil Dracovic should be the quarterback right now. But if you thought Ian Book was going to be fine, you say well, Ian Book didn't need to be good these games. It doesn't really matter what happened. He's played plenty of games before. He can be better than what he was these first two games. Next question is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. Crazy hypothetical. Because of COVID, the NCAA grants an emergency game of eligibility and Notre Dame could play 28-year-old offensive coordinator Tommy Reese on Saturday. He could run his own offense. Do you still start Ian Book? Um, well, first of all, I want to have a beer with him because he has good beer if he's thinks Tommy Reese was ever better than Ian Book. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I would start Ian Book. There's no way. I'll, I'll give Tommy some props. When he had to be the quarterback at uh, Pro Day, not this past spring, but the last time they actually had one, Tommy looked pretty good in that uh, at age 26 or whatever he was at that point. But I mean, Tommy will never have the mobility that book has book right now is the third all time career rusher in Notre Dame history for a quarterback. And he's going to pass Brandon Wimbush up in the next month. And only Tony Rice will be ahead of him. Tommy Reese isn't ahead of anybody, including Brian Kelly. I, I don't <laughs> think he finished in the positive numbers. So, um, and, and even from a pass efficiency standpoint, Book is so far ahead of where Tommy Reese was. Now, what I will give Tommy over Ian Book is what's in above the eyebrows, Tommy Reese is as good as it gets as a quarterback. He just did not have the natural talent and athleticism some of these other guys have. But so if you could put Tommy's brain in somebody else's body, I would take that. Yeah, and I don't mean that mean, Tommy. I would, if you put it in my body, it wouldn't do any good. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think most people would probably take book over a 22 year old Reese, let alone a 28 year old Reese. I'm not sure that it's much of a much of a de decision to make there. Next question is from Irish at Irish Zibby. Does Jack Kaiser playing really well against USF earn him some more playing time going forward? Does he have a chance to start full time since the other two fighting? For that position didn't seem to impress in week one and then Kevin Calabria also asked uh, is Jack Kaiser a number one well I think he certainly put himself in a position to have that evaluated you know there are times where a player in practice maybe you don't give them the opportunities and the guy that I can think of right off the top of my head is Drew White Drew White was never going to play at Notre Dame and Drew Tranquil got hurt in a Navy game the year before Drew White became a starter and came in 
and had a really impressive relief performance with True Tranquil on the sideline. And that got in the coach's head when it got to the following spring and Drew White was hurt. Even then, when everybody else was getting reps and he wasn't, he came back in the fall, won the job, and became Notre Dame's leading tackler or tied for leading tackler with Jeremiah Wusukormoa. I think Jack Kaiser could be that kind of player, but I don't think I want to underestimate what Maris Leofau and Shane Simon can do. They had all had equal opportunities to win that job. Clark Lee was looking at all those guys, and again, I think he's going to rotate front seven players, including linebackers, like a hockey team, except maybe Jeremiah a little bit less. But Drew White's going to come out. Um, whoever's playing Buck linebacker is going to come out. But I think Kaiser has played himself into possibly a bigger role. Remember, it's one game. It's USF. I don't want to minimize it because I've loved Kaiser since he stepped on campus. Um, but those other guys are pretty talented, too. So let's see how that plays out. Yeah, th- th- there was a reason why whenever we asked Brian Kelly or Clark Lee about the Buck linebacker position in the offseason or the preseason that they would name – six guys because they were all they were there wasn't a lot of separation between them so I think it shouldn't be terribly surprising that Jack Kaiser was not that far off from what we thought maybe Maris Leofau or Shane Simon would have been able to do um now I think kind of the, the caveat that hey this was USF USF isn't great and they also were missing two of their interior linemen that would have been asked to block Jack Kaiser um that were starters so that they were he was tasked with going against some reserve players as well. So I think that this has definitely earned Jack Kaiser the opportunity to be in the mix um, and get some more playing time. I don't think it, it would also be unfair to say that uh, Maris Leif, Leifau and, and Shane Simon um, are impossible to jump over. Like it's not like these guys were, um, it's not like they're Jeremiah Usu Koromoa and that, that Jack Kaiser put a, put a great performance in in place of him and that he's going to take him, take away his job. But so I, I think there's plenty of opportunity for them all to play. And I think we're always going to see a number of guys play that position this season. Um, and this is sort of an example of that. But I think um, we need to be keep everything into context. I know, I know we wanted to see football very badly this season, and now we won't get to see any this weekend for Notre Dame. Um, but we can't overreact to every single game. Uh, um, but it, it, it was important, and it certainly – uh, help them win that game, and it, it will um, help them throughout the rest of the season as well. Next question is from Joe at Joey Salvatore. What did you guys think of Jordan Johnson in the USF game? I was curious why Brian Kelly wasn't asked what happened with his personal foul against the USF player. Well, the thing is, you don't know whether that question was asked or not uh, because they go into a queue and they get selected out of a queue. So, um, I know that there's, we all have questions that we've asked. The first week, we're all asking about Braden Lindsay, and that question didn't get asked. So you can't assume that the question wasn't asked. It's just a weird format. It's going to be weird all year, and there's just no way around it. As far as my impressions of Jordan Johnson, I want to see more of him. Um, yeah, what he did, getting a bonehead penalty. Okay, learn, let's see if he learns from that. I know when he first um, came to campus in June, Brian Kelly was pretty fired up about his speed and some of the things that he thought he could do. And then 
it was dampened a little bit because his diligence off the field wasn't maybe matching what he was giving on the field. But I think give the kid a chance to grow up a little bit. Um, there's a reason he's a five-star receiver. Um, and there's a reason that Brian Kelly was excited about him in June. And so I'd, I'd like to see more of him if the game situation dictates that you can, you know, throw him on the field. If it's a, you know, one score game, I don't know that you want to bring Jordan Johnson in for the pivotal drive, but I think you want to take a look at him when there's opportunities. Yeah, it was certainly bad timing for Jordan Johnson to come out and do that right away when he got in the game. So the same week after I had asked him about Jordan Johnson and um, he said, he sort of mentioned that he needed to be more of a well-rounded student um, and mentioned traits. And so we all kind of know, we all kind of joke about Brian Kelly and his relying on using the term traits, but it's something he takes seriously. And if he feels like guys aren't at doing things in prep in preparing for games, uh, whether it's on the field or off the field, um, that he's going to be more hesitant to, to let those guys play. Um, so talent isn't the issue, um, but making mistakes like that will limit your opportunities. Now, I tend to agree with you that you let a kid learn through that. It wasn't the end of the world. Um, he, didn't get, he didn't do anything. He didn't get ejected even. Like, I, it could have been worse. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure what Brian Kelly would have said about that. Um, that would have given us more insight to the situation. Um, but uh, it certainly – it was a bit discouraging to see Jordan Johnson. I was like, man, well, we're not – might be a while before we get to see a lot more of Jordan Johnson, but we'll see what kind of uh, – uh, how, how Brian Kelly treats that moving forward. Next one is from uh, at Mr. Fantasy 20. Is Josh Lug being considered for reps at right guard? I think he's considered for reps everywhere. I mean, he's – the primary backup in both guard positions, both tackle positions. He's taken reps in practice at center before, although I don't think he would be their first alternative short term at center. He's a guy that certainly could go in and play very well there. So, I mean, he's ready to contribute whenever there's an injury or uh, a COVID emergency, he's ready to go. So that's how I see Josh Lug, really good player who would start at most schools. Yeah, even though we see John Dirksen and Dylan Gibbons listed as the backups at right guard and left guard, I still believe that Lug would be the the next man in at that position now. I don't know if this is hinting at whether they feel that Tommy Kramer isn't playing well enough at right guard to uh, that that would merit someone playing in his place. Um, I'm not sure that I feel that strongly about how Tommy has played yet this season, Um, but I I do think they like Josh and – if they, if they have an opportunity to get him in the game, they will not shy away from doing that, especially with how he played last season. Uh, next one is from Chris Buckley at TOEFL15. What are two things that should concern Irish fans as we get ready to start conference play? Well, the thing that I would be most concerned about is math because uh, they've already started conference play. Duke was a conference game. <laughs> um, so... Uh, but beyond that, I would say the interesting thing would be some of the scheduling in the ACC. Notre Dame does not have room for error here because they play Clemson and North Carolina, the two other best teams right now. There are some teams that don't play 
either Clemson or Notre Dame. For example, North Carolina doesn't play Clemson this year. Uh, Miami doesn't play uh, Clemson, uh, or Miami doesn't play Notre Dame. Virginia Tech doesn't play Notre Dame. And if North Carolina State was good, that would be a problem because they don't play either Clemson or Notre Dame. So you could get into a weird tiebreaker with some of these teams. So Notre Dame can't afford two losses is what I'm saying and expect to play in the ACC championship game. It could happen. But again, with some of these teams not playing both Notre Dame and Clemson, the chances that somebody could sneak in and win a tiebreaker with you know, two losses it is heightened by the fact that Miami's pretty good and Virginia Tech's ex- expected to be good. Yeah, I found I found the question funny because I don't think Irish fans are, are a group that need help finding things to worry about. <laughs> I think they're pretty good at doing that on their own. Um, and certainly we were given plenty to worry about today with the COVID-19 news. Um, but in terms of on-the-field stuff, I think secondary depth will remain uh, a concern. Um Obviously, you, when you're starting a, a freshman like Clarence Lewis, that is, got, has to be a concern, although he looked very good against USF. Um, and you can see some of the reasons why Brian Kelly was very complimentary of him um, when we asked him about him when he was named as a potential starter um, in the defense. Uh, and then, obviously, with Kyle Hamilton's injury, we're seeing a little bit more of the other safeties that will be asked to play. And uh, I'm not sure that we've been overwhelmed by what DJ Brown or Houston Griffith have done yet. Um, but I think they at least have frontline guys that they like there with, with Sean Crawford and Kyle Hamilton. And Go ahead. Well, speaking of safeties, did, did, did Isaiah Pryor play some Rover Saturday? He, yeah, he did. And he, I, even during warmups, he was warming up the linebackers. Um, so I think his days of playing safety seem to be um, maybe only in an emergency situation. Um, so I don't know that um, – we will see that. Although it was, I mean, you asked Brian Kelly flatly about about Isaiah Pryor at safety, and he 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 didn't he could have told you, hey, we're actually going to play him at Rover, but he didn't do that. Um, so uh, it doesn't seem like they're keeping him at safety. And that was even, I'm not sure I saw Lichfield Ajavon work uh, in warmups for Notre Dame at safety either. And so even despite that, they still had Isaiah Pryor warming up with the linebackers. Now, obviously that wouldn't necessarily prevent if they needed to play Isaiah Pryor in a game at safety. I think he's spent enough time in the program to kind of have a grasp of that. I just don't think they like his athleticism enough. And um, I think some of the concerns were whether or not he could cover enough ground and have enough speed at the safety position. Um, Maybe he um, is a better fit at Rover. Now, certainly that, isn't a good place to be in terms of someone that wants to play this season because Jeremiah Wusukoromo is there, um, and they like Paul Moalo as well. So um, Isaiah certainly has gotten off to a great start as a special teams player before, and that's certainly valuable for Notre Dame. Um, the other thing I, I think, and obviously we get, we've gotten questions about it, is sort of playmakers at the wide receiver position. They still need guys to prove that. Certainly we think Kevin Austin can sort of be the savior there, um, but we still need to see it, and he still needs to get back healthy. We don't know exactly – when he will be back, he seems to be on a decent timeline, um, but it, it could take a while for him to get back. We'll see how that progresses and where where he's at by the time Notre Dame plays a game again. Um, so those are the two things that I think are, are, are worth worrying about for Irish fans, secondary depth and the playmakers at wide receiver, and also being on the same page with Ian Book to make those plays. And then the last one we have is from Scott Reed at Greedy1967. How come no one comments on Kyron Williams' half-crop top jersey? 
I love the old school school look, and I hope he keeps it. Well, the reason I don't is because me uh, grading out someone else's wardrobe would be pretty hypocritical. So <laughs> I just kind of stay away from that. <laughs> I haven't mentioned it because he doesn't have a feed me tattoo on his stomach like Zeke Elliott recently got. Ohio State, former Ohio State running back and Dallas Cowboys running back. He got a tattoo that says feed me on his, on his stomach. So if Kyron Williams gets a feed me tattoo on his stomach that he can show off during the games, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. We'll be back next week with another podcast and hopefully a clear picture of when Notre Dame will play its next game. Uh, Stick with IndieInsider.com for your Notre Dame football coverage needs all season long. 